OMG, you guys, hi. Was that super annoying? It might've been super annoying. And if you haven't listened to the podcast before and that was your first time, I apologize. That was probably a little aggressive. So hi, I just missed you. I missed you so much. Welcome to 2020. I hope the year has been treating you well so far. I can't remember what I was going to say, so I'm going to move on to the next thing. So today's guest, I am really excited to share with you. I feel like this is probably the episode where I did the least amount of talking and I just kind of let Jeremy go and do his thing. And so this is basically Jeremy like dumping all of his wisdom right in your face, which is amazing. So Jeremy French is who you'll be hearing from today. And he wrote his bio in all caps. And so I feel like I need to shout it. But at the same time, I think I already offended you with the intro that I did. So I'm just going to say it like a normal person. So Jeremy French is a maker. He's made lots of cool things, a sober life worth living, a marriage, some really great kids, time to spend outside, some furniture, and a business that teaches addicts how to make these things for themselves. He's really excited to figure out how to help make more things that make life better for more people. So please enjoy my interview with Jeremy French. Jeremy. Hey there. (laughs) Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm, um, I just bought a mattress, so that's fun. I heard that mattresses are a huge racket. Like the people that sell mattresses are basically criminals. I was just talking about that with my husband. Yeah. We, never mind. I don't care. I don't want to talk about that. That's not fun for the listeners. We can talk about that <laughs> later. But so, like bad start, bad start. Bad start. Anyway, let's talk about how you and I met because that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. So we went to... Cape Cod Symposium for Addictive Disorders. If you're listening to this and you've never been to one of these like symposium, seminar, conference things, essentially there's like one place where they have a bunch of vendors. And so it's like, you know, these fancy schmancy treatment centers and everything looks the same. They've got these same banners. Everybody hands out candy, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I'm walking around there just like seeing if I know people, seeing who looks cool. And I go to the end of the row and I see this gorgeous fucking table that I'm like, I would love to have that in my house. And then I think you weren't there at that time because I walked around before people got there. And then when I saw you there later, I'm like, and you look really fucking cool. So like, (laughs) let's just talk. I think one of the first things you asked me, I can't remember how we got on this conversation, but one of the first things you asked was, do you know the definition of courage? Oh. And I said to what was I can't now, of course, I can't remember it. It was compassion. Yes, it was compassion. That's what it was. The backdrop of our booth said radical compassion. Yes, yes. And you said, you know, the definition of compassion, I said to suffer with you pulled out your iPhone and you showed me your latest Instagram post that said that exact thing. And I was like, well, that's right. Here we are, friend. Here we are. And then actually the first definition that Google gives you was actually really bad. It's basically like to take pity on somebody was kind of the way the definition read. That is not correct. Apparently, Google doesn't know everything, which is Mm going to be fixed soon enough. They're getting close. Right. So, yeah, it was this idea of radical compassion, which I had written on the chalkboard. I heard it, somebody talking or it was a... Something that I read and the idea really struck me of radical compassion. And so I wrote it on the chalkboard and took a picture of it. It was like a meditation. 
Mm-hmm. And that picture ended up in this big folder full of pictures. And when the graphic designer that I work with and I were building the booth and we're building the brochure that we have for the program, she picked that image out, mm. w- which I had never intended to use. And it ended up in the middle of my booth. There was no branding for who we were. And it was just this word, radical compassion. And I was mm-hmm. driving. I loved the backdrop that we had. I loved it. But it wasn't necessarily strategically built for this symposium, which is really kind of a trade show, for lack of a better way to put it. And I thought to myself, I should probably know what this means, considering it's like the center of this booth that I've paid paid a lot of money to be at. And and so radical, it comes from the idea of root. And so you basically get to the Mm -hmm. root of an idea. And so the idea of radical compassion is to get to the root of suffering with somebody else. Mm. I think it's a really interesting idea when you're dealing with people who are suffering and when you're in the business of trying to help people who are suffering to get Mm -hmm. down to be willing to suffer with somebody. It's a really twisted profession to be in when you think about it because it means you're signing up to suffer. Yep. (laughs) That's true. I play soccer and I follow soccer and one of my favorite coaches talks about it. He's an Argentinian guy and his Mm. English is not great. And he talks about the idea of his team suffering together. Mm. And so what's interesting about the way he phrases that is you can tell that the word he's using when he says suffering means something different in his language Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than what it means in our language. And for us, the idea of suffering is basically to just hurt. It just means being in pain. And that's when we hear suffering. And what he talks about is more this sort of commitment to go wherever we need to go and experience whatever sort of intensity is going to come with that. Mm. That's what he's talking about. Like basically everybody signed up to go through the mud together, you know, and there's Mm. a a little bit of like, uh, obviously because he's talking about soccer, there's a sort of teamwork aspect of it. It's not an individual thing when he describes it. And that's also really interesting to me is that in America to suffer is basically you're alone in that, Mm -hmm. you know, the pain is is something that you're alone with. You know, when he's describing it, it's something that everybody's doing together. And Mm. so I like that idea. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, before we dig more into that concept, how about you tell people more about who you are and and what you do? Wow, where do we start with that? So part of the reason why it's really beneficial for me to do podcasts and to write and to talk to people is that it's difficult for me to capture who I am and what I'm doing in sound bites. Yeah. And so a lot of these exercises for me are exercises in trying to become more concise and more clear in what it is we're doing. And I don't know that I get any closer. I like to ramble. So I'm I'm here for all of it. <laughs> so the, the bird's eye view of what I do is I have an apprenticeship program where I teach men who are recovering from addiction how to build furniture. And so that's the bird's eye view. And the idea of the apprenticeship is more of the old idea where there's sort of a student and a master and not necessarily the new idea of community college teaching. And so the objective here is to get people in a position where they're they're intimately connected with somebody that's been there before them. Mm hmm. And where they're in a situation where they're taking as many cues from how the person who's been there before them conducts themselves and holds themselves in various spaces and less about learning specific techniques. Right. 
And so what we do is we present problems to solve, and those, those problems are in the form of building objects, and then we navigate through those problems. It's rare that we build the same thing twice. Hmm. What we're doing is building things that haven't been built before, oftentimes things that have a high potential for failure. Hmm. And it's things that I've not built and the other instructors or mentors here have not built. And so what the guys are seeing is what happens with the people who've been there before, how they navigate solving problems where there's the chance that it, there's no solution. There's a chance for failure. Mm. And what happens during that process and how do people conduct themselves and what sort of tools are used. And the reason for the work, you know, it'd be great if when people come out of here and they're capable of building furniture, that's excellent. And that's a byproduct of the work we do. But that's really secondary to what I'm aiming for is that people learn how to solve complicated problems and that that process for solving a complicated problem when we're building a dining table or a desk or a bed or whatever is the same process that I've used to navigate recovery. And that's really what recovery from addiction is, is learning how to navigate life and learning how to navigate all the problems that are presented with life and learning how to do that in a way that's not destructive effectively, you know. And literally constructive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How, yeah. Do you, how do you create a solution is the question. Mm -hmm. And so what drugs provided me was the most effective solution that I ever experienced to the experience I was having for life. And so what recovery means to me is developing new solutions for what life is going to present. So it's it's less about the sort of external reality of whether somebody's getting high or not and more about the question of are they developing new solutions and, and more importantly, are they developing a process to arrive at those solutions? So part of the work and part of doing work that we've not done before is, you know, I've been sober now for 24 years and early on there was a lot of cute tools and strategies that people would give about how not to get high, but at some right. point life is going to serve up some bullshit. Some some serious, <laughs> complicated things that nobody can plan for. There's no, you can't write a book on all the different things that could happen. That people you'll know that will die. What happens when you have kids? What happens when you're married? What happens when you're married for a decade and 15 years? What happens when life serves up the good, the bad, and the ugly? So our approach here is that if somebody can walk away from here and have familiarity with the process of solving problems, then that familiarity translates. So we identify a problem, we come up with some possible solutions, we begin to test things, things work, things don't work. Where do we go from there? And the beauty of furniture is that it's objective. It's not as emotionally charged. It's like if I'm going to talk about what it was like growing up traumas that I've experienced. And what I find is that when my emotional centers are tickled, I immediately go into a defensive mode. Mm. And then my ability to solve problems in a defensive mode is incredibly diminished. Yeah. yeah. And so the beauty of doing furniture is that you're going to arrive. Now, there's, it's an emotional experience because it's what you're doing, but you're going to arrive where you're going to arrive without as much emotion. So now we can look at things. I think one of the best examples that's come up is we had this great event here at the shop. A music producer was doing this sort of pop-up concert series that he was videotaping to raise awareness about the opioid crisis. 
And so he bought a symphony into our shop and uh, African drum and dance troupe into our shop. And when he came here, he was like, oh, man, we could. This is great. I want to do something here. I want to have a symphony in the shop. And can we build some instruments that the symphony can play? And so that sounds like we're not building violins here, but it was a youth symphony ensemble that came and they picked out a piece of music that had these different like toy instruments. And so one of the Mm -hmm. instruments was a train whistle, which, you know, it's just a block of wood. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he says, can we build one of these? And I said, of course. So he sends a YouTube video of exactly what he wants to build. And I pass that on to one of the guys who's coming up on the year of him having been here, which is a big transition for him. He's capable completely of doing this project. And I just give it to him and say, go build this. And so he comes in the next day after he's built this whistle and he's carrying a PVC pipe with him. And he says, I'd like to build a didgeridoo instead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, well, you kind of have a didgeridoo in your hand right now. Because all you have to do is blow on a PVC pipe and it sounds exactly like a didgeridoo. And I didn't actually ask you to build a didgeridoo. That's, there's not a part for the didgeridoo in this thing. And where's your train whistle? And he says, well, it's in the shop. I was like, well, go get it. Let's look at it. And he's like, well, there's a problem with it. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he says, well, it doesn't make any sound. And I said, well, it sounds like you haven't built a whistle then. <laughs> It's kind of one of the requirements of something being called a whistle is mm-hmm, that it whistles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he's like, yeah, it doesn't whistle. And so I'm like, well, what happened? He's like, I don't know. I followed all the directions. And so w- we take a step back. We get this whistle that doesn't make any sound. Like no matter how you blow or what angle, it's not a whistle. It's a block of wood that's shaped like a whistle. And so we go back through this YouTube video that gives the directions. And the way the YouTube video is structured is that the screen will go black and it'll say step one and it describes step one. And then there's this period of time where they're doing what's in step one and the guy is talking about the process. And so there's this space in between the, hey, this is what you're supposed to do steps where there's this discussion about what's happening in this guy's experience. So we go through all the steps and he did all the steps and it's evident because this thing looks like a whistle. So we go back through the videos, like I did all these things. We go back through the video and at one point in that space between the steps, he says, at this stage, I like to test what the sound's going to be like. And I said, did you do that? And he said, no, I didn't. And so one of the interesting things about the process of recovery and, and this, I've seen this in every mode of recovery that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. One of the places that it's evident is in the instructions on how to take the 12 steps. It's in AA. And so there's two sets of instructions in the big book of AA. One of them is we made a list. They're black and white concrete things about what we did. And they're pretty mm-hmm. evident. Mm-hmm. You know, we made a list of who we were resentful at. Well, that's easy. I've been thinking about why I was resentful at these people for the past 20 years. You know, that's mm-hmm. pretty easy to yep. come up with. The other thing is this set of instructions that's a little easier to miss. And it talks about our demeanor and our disposition. And it says things like we grasp with the desperation of drowning men. Mm. And that's a whole different set of instructions about how we position our attitude. And it's this sort of gray space in between the black and white of the directions. And most people miss that. And I've, yeah. I've yet to see somebody who gets better, who doesn't put both those pieces in place. Mm-hmm. So anyway, here's this opportunity. Now this guy sees, oh yeah, I didn't do that. And it's evidenced in the fact that this whistle doesn't work. It's not a subjective conversation at this point where we're getting into like, oh, is your attitude, are you willing? We're not talking about these vague ideas. We're talking about a whistle that doesn't work. And he's willing to hear about that because it's not debatable. And it's not 
a function of like, are you good enough or are you listening well enough? It's evidence, right? And so this provides this opportunity. Then we start talking about why didn't you follow these directions? And what this uncovers is we're talking about something that happened 24 hours prior to where we're sitting here. And so we can retrace our steps 24 hours relatively simply and say, what were you feeling at this point? What was going on in your head? Yeah. What's your space? What, what kind of headspace are you in? It opens up this conversation that he's now facilitating. He's telling me what's going on. And he starts talking about what he was experiencing the day before. And what it is, is all his anxiety and fear and uncertainty about mm -hmm. the transition that he's in in this life which is something that I've intentionally not talked to him about because I want right. him to bring that story to me. So instead of me saying, hey, look, you're in a transition, this is what you can expect. I want him to say to me, hey, I'm in a transition, what should I expect? He's now facilitating this conversation. I don't have to instigate it. And he's doing it in a way to where there's not any tension. And with drug addicts, there's a real natural tension that's happening from the get-go when somebody's there's that sort of defensive tension that comes from being emotionally vulnerable. And so that's an example of how the work and the objective nature of the work and how that isn't attached to all this emotion provides this opportunity to have the conversation that we're all driving to have, which is like what's working and not working in the way your brain navigates solving the problems that you're presented with in life. You know, and one of those problems is transition. And transition has a pretty obvious DNA. There's a certain amount of fear and anxiety. And we're walking into something that's uncertain and a lot of gray area. And so the work teases those things out of the people who are here. So that's really the objective is the work is a bit of a smokescreen for us to actually get into doing the work of helping people navigate life. Well, it sounds like everything becomes a metaphor and everything becomes a teaching tool and it's experiential therapy is one of the tools that a lot of treatment centers use, but, right. but most often it's not a solely experiential center. Right. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is really that you're giving people an experience and it's brilliant. It is so brilliant. I love this idea. I'm so curious how it came to be. So it is experiential. And one of the things that makes it especially interesting is that the experience we're using is the experience of work. And that's something people are going to have to do when they leave here. So it's not like board game experiential therapy where right. there's a big stretch on how is this going to be applicable. Everybody who leaves here is most likely going to have to go back to work. And they're learning those very hard skills in the process of that. Mm -hmm. So the way this came to be is 2003 is the first studio I opened. And prior to that, I had a landscaping business where both my studios and the landscaping business, I always ended up hiring drug addicts because those are the people I knew you know, people who are new in recovery. And for years, people would come and work for me and then they would leave and they'd go on about their life. And they would come back to me years later and say, you know, working in your shop changed my life. And, mm. and what they would talk about is specifically is that they would watch myself and the people who kind of ran the studio who were also had had a decent amount of time of recovery. They watched how we navigated life. That was the thing was the opportunity to see how people navigated life. And so I, I heard that over and over, and I never had any intention in the world of making a profession out of helping people. It's something that I'd, I've done a lot of work on a personal level, sponsoring guys and helping guys on a, on a personal level, but I never thought I would get here professionally until I had a series of really important people in my life kill themselves. 
And what I was left with was a couple of things. One of the things was I felt like we didn't have the time that we needed to get somewhere. And so an example of that is I would have somebody come to me and we would get together on a personal level at on Tuesday night and we would spend a couple hours together. And the first hour was like kind of spelling out the crisis that was happening at any given point. And the second hour was sort of developing a plan for that. And then life would happen after Tuesday night and they would leave Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. period of time together and they'd be feeling positive and had a game plan. And Wednesday, they'd do well. And Thursday, it'd be kind of gray. And then Friday, they'd begin Mm -hmm. their descent back into whatever was going on. And by Saturday, we were back in the crisis. And so it became this thing where like twice a week, I would end up spending a lot of time just trying to recover back to ground zero. And we would get there and then it would fall apart. And what I realized is that people didn't have the time to really exercise and practice these things we were talking about with support. So we would have this conversation, we would develop a good plan, and then they were on their own. And so one of the things that would happen with certain people is that they would have, for one reason or another, developed enough of a support network in their life. They had enough connections in their life to where that practice wasn't as big of a stretch. But then there's a lot of people that didn't have those people or they had alienated everybody or they just weren't connected or they're introverts or whatever. I was really struggling with this question of, is there more you can provide for these people that can affect the change in their lives? So that's where the idea of this was born from. And it wasn't an idea of certainty where I thought, oh, this is definitely going to work. It was more an idea of curiosity. of What happens when you have 40 hours a week that you're with somebody? And Mm -hmm. we can take the experience that they're having and work with it during the most lucid time of the day, which is the work day. The first apprentice showed up in July of 2018, and we've been doing it since. And I'm not positive about how effective this is, but I am positive that it's, it's as effective as anything else I've seen. And so it brings up this interesting, you sent me this list of the sort of preparation for this podcast. And one of the questions was something to the effect of how do you relate to the idea of being a healer? Mm-hmm. Is I love you're interviewing yourself. <laughs> I don't have to do anything today. It's great. Am I talking too much? No, oh, but good. that's literally the next question I was going to ask. All right. So, so, so frame, the question, frame the question for me because it struck me, but I don't remember exactly how you worded it. Are you a healer is the question and in reference to the work that you do or just as a human? Right. And so that phrasing really struck me and Mm -hmm. it it ties into what I'm just talking about, about I don't know how effective this is. You know, we're in the same work and in this work, we have a goal and that goal is for somebody to be in their highest self, whatever that looks like. And so the word healer strikes me in that it's defining me with a verb and that verb is that Mm -hmm. I'm healing somebody. Mm -hmm. And so in the best metaphor I can give is a painting, right? And so if our goal of having somebody reach their highest self, if the metaphor is our goal is to have a painting, what that painting represents is this massive process of a huge number of things. One of them is the technique of painting and one of them is the, the chemistry of the paints and how paints work and whether they have texture, whether they don't have texture, whether they're stable in light, whether they're going to change colors in time, how they're going to interact with the world. There's the whole history of painting and what it references from a thousand years ago. There's this whole complicated story of how we arrive at the painting. And that painting is, in this case, the metaphor for having a higher life. I'm not the painter. The person who I'm working with is the painter, just like I'm not the healer. 
So what my job is, is I've painted, I've got a painting of my own and I've arrived at that painting, which is a process from people who taught me how to paint. And so just like I've painted, I've arrived at a place where I'm comfortable in my own skin. I feel a sense of wholeness. It's not complete, but it's in the process of. And so what I'm aiming to do with guys is to provide them with the tools they need so that if they decide to paint their painting, they have what they need to do that. And so that's what this place is. I think of myself in my role in this program is to create fertile ground. That's it. And then what I'm going to do is rely on the fertile ground to do the work of growing the plants. And so rather than being the guy that's growing the plants, I'm just creating the framework for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so one of the challenges of being in this is that there's no guarantee when I'm working with somebody that a painting is going to come out of it. And so if I was a healer, then what that presumes is that I have some connection or technique or a supernatural ability to impart healing. And I don't. What I have is the experience of healing myself. And I've spent enough time in my life considering how that happened Mm -hmm. to understand the process of how I arrived at where I arrived. And I have a certain belief that that process is universal. And so what I'm trying to do is pass along that recipe to somebody else. And then if they, if they decide to pick up the paintbrush and paint, that's the part I can't do anything about. I can certainly encourage it. I can let them know, but I can't pick up the paintbrush for them. I can't paint the painting for them. I think the other important thing about the work we do is that in my philosophy about teaching is that I want to teach process. I don't want to teach techniques. Yeah. I don't want to develop realist painters that paint like I do. I want to develop enough of an awareness about what they're trying to accomplish so that they paint whatever it is that's inside of them. And if that looks like mine, that's great, but I would rather it look like theirs. Yeah. And your method of supporting people in recovery, like that metaphor is perfect. And I was curious as you were talking the term apprentice then also calls for master, right? At least that, that's historically <laughs> what yeah. it's called. But I'm guessing that you don't go around saying that you're the master. Um, I'm curious yeah. what term you use for the guys, at least who are her, the shepherds, if you will. You know, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I have a term. Hmm. We've got names. That's what we've got. <laughs> uh, and the thing about it is that the guy that is our woodworker who by every right deserves to be called a master has as many questions as he does answers and Mm. this guy's literally written a book on woodworking and has been at it for a long time and is apprenticed under some of the most recognizable names in the world and one of the things that's great about him is that he doesn't have the answers and so master is a yeah, it's a word that we don't it's use. It's a loaded term, right? Right. So we just call him Andy, and sometimes right. A- Andy's right, and sometimes Andy's completely off his head, and he's mm-hmm. not right. And that's important. You know, it's it's interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today about the relationship of parents to their children and how I've got teenagers right now. And Oof. God bless you. Oh, man, it's a, it's a real trip. And so one of the things we were talking about is, Basically, that kids only know their parents as that, but they don't know their parents. And right. part of that is is in the belief 
because at some point we did have control of their whole lives, you know, when they weren't capable of doing anything, is that we provide everything that they need. And so that's the context of our relationship. And, you know, when I got sober, there was a guy who's, who I now look back and this guy mentored me and, and he is facilitating me getting better. But at the time, I resented this guy as, as often as I loved him, right? And part of my resentment was the real challenge that I had grappling with the idea of his imperfection. You know, mm. he would do things, he would get resentful. And, and I, mm. you know, coming into recovery, I'm like, well, what are we supposed to do here? And we're supposed to shed our resentments and we're supposed to right. do the right thing. And, and you're all not this. doing it right. And you're, fuck it, you're, you're clearly mm. not good at this, you know? And right. so how are you going to tell me how to do it if you're not any good at it, right? And so I did that for years where I found myself in communities of people who were fundamentalists. And the mm. reason why I ended up there is because one of the tenets of fundamentalism, doesn't matter what we're talking about, is people that say we're absolutely right about what we're talking about. So I was super attracted to that because I was looking for the people who were absolutely right. Who and had so, the answers, yeah. Yeah, right. The mm -hmm, people who mm -hmm. were infallible, right? And it turns out I never found them. So I looked for years and years and years for these people. I never found mm -hmm. them. It turns out nobody's infallible. And so part of what's nice here is that we're all flawed. And we're not going to try to hide that. It's a feature. It's not a bug is that right. we, we don't have the answers. And so there is that the language of apprentice and master is limited. And so guys here are called apprentices because it's a hell of a lot of better word than a client or yeah. degenerate. <laughs> Let me jump in here because I'm just comparing in my head. So, you know, a client goes to a treatment center and they have this expectation of receiving the gift of sobriety, essentially, <laughs> right, right? Right. I mean, that's kind of what people sign up for. You know, they pay all this money or their insurance pays the money, whatever. And it's like, you know, you're set up with a therapist and the therapist knows all the answers in some level and you don't know anything. And even though like I don't feel that way as a therapist and I know most therapists don't feel that way, that's the way the system is set up. For sure, yeah. And what I'm hearing you've really done in such a subtle and beautiful way is leveled the playing field. Like this truly is a 12-step experience of just doing it. You're not preaching to anybody. You're not trying to tell them that there's a, a right way and a wrong way. It's just, this is the way we do it. And if you really like this, you come along and hang out with us and you'll paint your own painting. You'll make your own train whistle or a fucking didgeridoo, whatever it is that you want. Right. right. <laughs> and yeah. it's truly walking alongside. And it, I don't know, there's just something about it that's so, it's like so simple and so profound at the same time. It's fucking brilliant. Thank you. It's radical compassion. That's what we're doing. And so I'm yeah. also, I like language a lot. I like how language dictates who and how we are and mm -hmm. what I've been gifted this opportunity to create this thing. And so part of what I've done is gone back and considered how the language gets in the way of what we're actually trying to accomplish. And so we don't talk about 12 steps here necessarily. There's no 12 steps on the wall. So th that's not what we're doing. And part of the reason for that is that there's language in there that's absolutely spot on in my experience of how to get better. But it's language that carries so much baggage with it that people miss what we're talking about. And so God's probably the best example of this. Right. The word God, mm -hmm. it, it's so if the purpose so loaded, <laughs> it's loaded. Right. So if the mm -hmm. purpose of language is that you and I can have a conversation and we can say words and I can say a word to you and without you seeing what I'm talking about, you know, in a general way what I'm talking about. So 
what that means is we have to take a word. And, and so if we want to figure out if language is effective or not, we can go to a thousand people and say, what does this word mean to you? And if everybody's in the same ballpark, then it's probably an effective word to use in conversation. God is one word that if we took it to a thousand people, we would get a thousand different, a thousand def- different answers. Yeah. Right. And so mm-hmm. that word's insufficient. Now, the concept is absolutely spot on in the idea that I have to come out of my self-centered experience where the universe exists inside of me to develop a relationship to how do I fit into the infinite universe, not how does the universe fit into me. And if I don't do that, and my frame for existence is based on me, in between my ears, then I'm fucked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's an idea that I'm not any closer to having a definition for myself. And the longer that I experience both the experience of getting connected to God, for lack of a better word, and the conversation around that, the further I am from being able to explain what that means to me. And at the same moment, it becomes more the central part of my experience of being human. And so I think that rather than sitting around having conversations about the word God, what is more valuable is to produce an environment where people are challenged and somebody gets to see where they go when they're challenged. What happens when the outcome's uncertain? What do you do with that? You know, do you freak out? Do you lose your mind? Do you throw tools? Do you become unresponsive? You know, maybe the answer to all those questions is yes. And then we get to see what that looks like. You know, what happens when you get frustrated and you throw a tool down? You break your fucking tool and everything sucks, right? But you also get to see people go through, if they need to go there, that's fine. But if also what they're presented with is people squaring up their focus to getting connected to an infinite resource and they get to see what that outcome looks like, that's the best measure. I I can't do any better work of helping somebody come to their own personal relationship with the infinite universe than me finding out how to be there myself. And so if we get into a situation where the outcome is A, uncertain, and B, appears to be a failure, what do I do with that? And so the work of creating objects that haven't been created before, you find yourself there continuously at every stage of the game, you're going to find yourself there. And so what that presents for everybody here, myself included, you know, I'm growing and learning through this process, just as everybody else is, it provides these opportunities to see, well, what do we do with that? What happens when we're making something and it breaks, or it just looks like trash, and it doesn't meet our expectations? What do we do with that? Is that a verdict that we're bad? Does that mean we're bad? Does that mean we're unsuccessful? What does that mean? You know, and how we frame ourselves against that is really going to determine the experience we have in life. And the thing that I'm hearing in this too, you know, again, everything is a metaphor. And my guess is, is that, you know, part of the reason you want to create things that are potentially not creatable is learning to live life on life's terms means really learning how to deal with surrender. And what I'm really tuning into is my guess is the guy who would be most successful in your program is probably going to not be quite as successful in a traditional program because there's going to be this power struggle. And my guess is, is that what shows up with your guys and the work that you do is that because you're not trying to teach concepts and you're not trying to teach technique, the ability to remove that power struggle, it's just like, hey, dude, we're just making this thing. 
and you know you get to have whatever process you have around this and we'll be here like when you stop throwing your temper tantrum or something right like and that's that's what's so fucking brilliant like i can just think of a ton of young people that i've worked with over the years who you know also had kind of like you this like well if you're not doing it right like how are you supposed to teach me or you know what i (laughs) i rarely actually got this but i was always afraid that people would be like well you're not an addict how are you going to help me right right again i just can't say how brilliant this is like i want to send i want to send every Everybody to you. <laughs> well, send them to me. We, we're mm-hmm. we're, uh, we're taking people. It's one of the other components of this, and this is the business for me, and this is how I support my family, and it's a new business, and it's not the first business I've started in my life, but it could be the best idea in the world, and that doesn't guarantee business success. And so we're a new business, and anybody that has this feeling who's listening, oh, I got to send everybody to you, do that. please please send them all we'll take them yeah yeah well i mean part of my hope of course having you on here is that we raise your visibility and continue to create more connections for you because it was just so clear when i met you people all the time are like how do you choose your podcast guests and i'm like i just meet incredible people it's just there's kind of this like internal like kerplunk that happens when i'm like ah that motherfucker's doing their work <laughs> you know i really i really want people on here who are doing their own internal work which then usually it manifests in success not necessarily financial business success but it manifests in success in the way that you move through the world and that's that was just clear the second that i met you i appreciate that that's what i'm trying to do and and mm-hmm. i've had to become more comfortable than ever before in living in uncertainty living without the answers you know i've been a professional for a long time my primary medium is in concrete and i've done that for a lot of years and it's a really unpredictable material but i've got enough experience with it to where even though i was uncertain of the outcome i've got a good idea what's going to happen And I'm not surprised as often, even though I still am, it's still uncertain. And so anyway, as a professional, I've gotten to this point where I'm more comfortable being quote unquote uncertain because I've got this like experience to where I'm not really as uncertain. I've got an idea. I'm back in this place where my level of uncertainty is really heightened, even though cement and concrete chemistry is unpredictable. The number of variables is is limited compared to people. You know, people are the Mm -hmm. ultimate um, (laughs) and unpredictable and Mm -hmm. and frightening. And the other thing is we're dealing with life. The best piece, probably the best thing I've ever made in terms of an object was one of the toughest pieces we've made here, which is a memorial wall for people who've passed away. Mm. And it's a really great object. You can go on our Instagram and see a picture of it. It's burned wood with polished steel in the middle Mm -hmm. of it. So you can you can see a reflection if you look closely enough in this mm. memorial wall. And then there's, you know, right out of the gate, there's 25 faces of people that I know and people that guys here know. And it's when you walk in the front door of this place, it's the first thing you see. And so we were building this and I came in the day we were starting on the project. And one of my guys was like really out of sorts. And I was like, what's going on, man? And he's like, I got, I got to be honest with you. I fucking hate this piece. Mm. I hate it. And I don't want to ever look at this thing. I never want to see it. And nobody had an experience with this that was non-emotional. Wow. And this guy who was really struggling with it, his best friend was one of the guys on this board who had just passed away probably within a couple of weeks of this Mm. thing being built. And so what's interesting is that we walk in the door, we're facing the fact that this is the outcome for a staggering number of people. And so rather than running away from that and hope and 
Like that's just part of the reality of the work that we're doing. And so the beauty, part of what makes this memorial wall so important is that in a way it changes the conversation, both about the people who are on that wall and also about the idea of death and what we're up against. And Mm. instead of it just becoming this black and white, good and bad thing, it becomes a much Mm -hmm. more nuanced conversation about both the individuals and what we're up against. And, you know, I've known a lot of people to die and some of my closest friends in my life, you know, two of the guys who stood with me at my wedding are on that wall. There are family members on that wall. I've sponsored a lot of guys that now who both Mm -hmm. died of overdoses and died of suicide. Mm -hmm. And it's what we're up against. And so, you know, the uncertainty of building a table and it failing and and somebody being unhappy with the outcome or whatever is like, you'll lose sleep over that if you're a maker. And anybody who's a maker has experienced that if they've done it professionally of having a piece that didn't turn out quite right or didn't work at all together. And the potential outcome is that people are unhappy and that's uncomfortable and maybe your finances don't work out. And those are wildly uncomfortable things. And now we're talking about, yeah, if this doesn't work out, this guy's going to be dead. And that's like, man, it not only is the uncertainty of this work so much more broad, it's the stakes are a lot higher. Right. And the people who are involved is a lot, it's a lot broader spectrum from friends and family and it means that uh, anybody who gets into this business is, is obviously broken on some level, because why would you sign up for this? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, my God. Right. Well, that, you know, that begs the question about wounded healer. How do you feel about that term? My feeling about healer I've expressed and wounded is I think it's a really fair description. <laughs> the one thing about the language around being sick I've got a guy right now who's been around for a long time and and has recently had a manic break and he's really struggling and he's trying to find his way. It's been one of the more difficult things I've ever had to deal with. And I was speaking with him yesterday and he's not sleeping. He's going through the motions, seeing the psychiatrist. They're trying to get his medication right, but he hasn't slept in a week, you know, and that's clearly like accelerating this thing. And I asked him, what's your plan for sleeping? And he says, well, if I don't sleep, I'll go to the psych ward. And I said, well, what are we waiting on? And he's like, well, I'm not there yet. And so one of the things that struck me about that is, and this has happened to me in a physical sense. One of the things he said is if I go to the psych ward, then they're going to put me on benzos and I'm going to have to go to detox and it's going to be terrible, right? Mm-hmm. The thing is, is if dude had a fever that prevented him from work and that had him to the point of where he was hallucinating right. visually and auditorily, that made it to where he couldn't exist in life nobody would be questioning. The dude would be in the hospital, period. That's where you go. It's just not even a question. Switch the diagnosis to mental health. And suddenly Mm -hmm. the place that we go automatically becomes the absolute place you want to go. And look, there's reason for that because psych wards, you know, Mm -hmm. are psych wards, right? But Mm -hmm. the flip side of that is like our ideas. And so the idea of being wounded presumes that there was a starting point that was golden, so like, oh, we, we were good. And then we got, you know, <laughs> we used to be able to walk and then our knee got mm-hmm. broken and now we'll mm-hmm. never walk. There's an idea of a handicap in that. Mm-hmm. I guess what it means is that I will always be broken. And so that's an interesting idea. And there's, a, I think there's validity to that. The other question is like, okay, well, what's the point of life? What's our objective here? Is our goal mm-hmm. to avoid suffering? 
is our goal to arrive at some pinnacle nirvana. yeah nirvana or <laughs> enlightenment <laughs> or or like pinnacle of perfection that's my fantasy right <laughs> that i keep fighting against right. in therapy yeah. right that's a fantasy it's, it goes mm-hmm. right there it's as absurd as the mm-hmm. idea that marriage is what disney presents marriage is supposed to be it doesn't make sense right and so if we can agree that that doesn't make sense and what life is really about is having the experience of separation from oneness. And so all of the wounds that I have are my reaction to the experience of being separate from being whole. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything that I've done that's produced negative effects in my life is a byproduct of me taking all the resources mm-hmm. that I have at my disposal and running oftentimes unconsciously, but running very scientific tests. Like, hey, I feel like I'm not on a level playing ground with the rest of the world. What happens when I do this? And so lo and behold, that happened to me. I did this, that this happened to be getting high. And suddenly I was on a level playing ground with the world. That experience Mm -hmm. of oneness disappeared. And so when we look at addiction in that context, I actually arrived at one of the most effective solutions in the human experience. Because my dilemma is that I'm separate from oneness and this thing caused me to experience oneness. And if that had not quit working, I would continue to be doing it. But it quit working and that's when I found myself in a real dilemma. And so if what I'm doing is surviving some wound, that means that I'm never going to be like I was, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. somebody who breaks their their leg and can never run again. And then life becomes about adapting to this unfortunate circumstance and just like kind of settling for, oh, you'll never get where you wanted to be, but at least you won't fucking hate it. Right. If what we're really doing is we're really trying to navigate the experience of being separate and we've tried many things and they've produced the outcomes they've produced and we're still alive then I kind of think we're actually ahead of the curve. And in that sense, I feel when I go out and see people existing in the world seem to be comfortable, I get a certain sense of like, man, that's a fucking weird reaction to the human experience. (laughs) Right? To be comfortable? You know, the whole... Every, like, are you paying attention if you're actually comfortable? Yeah. How the hell do you get there? And is that is that what I'm right. supposed to be after? Am I supposed to be after that? I'm certainly wounded. My capacity to exist in life without struggling is a struggle. And so yeah. is that because handicapped or is that because mm-hmm. that's what fucking life's supposed to be? Yeah, I think that's what fucking life is supposed to be. Right. And so, and then when you look at it in that context, you know, I was thinking one of the first books I was ever given, I was given a couple of books that were transformational for me early on. One of them is The Power of Myth. And that book Mm. is Joseph Campbell basically telling the story. He's the one that really introduced me to this idea that the whole metaphor of the Bible was about, particularly Genesis, is about the idea Mm -hmm. of separation. Like the whole story comes after this idea that we've been separate. We were one, we got knowledge which Mm -hmm. created a separation. And now here's our experience and what the fuck are we going to do with it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was one really profound book that actually came back to me right when I started this project, which was really good. And it it, it took on a whole different shape and was was a great book. The other one was A Road Less Traveled, was the guy that I mentioned before who was my mentor gave me that. And the first line I think of the book is life is difficult. 
And then it says something to the effect of, okay, once we accept that, it doesn't suck as bad. And mm-hmm. so that's a really interesting directive in the sense that when we are considering language, and this is the reason why these mm-hmm. questions that you pose were so interesting to me, is that mm-hmm. to some extent, language becomes our directive. And so if what I am is A, wounded, and B, a healer, there's implications that come with that completely unconsciously to me mm-hmm. that are going to set me on to a path, and I want to know that that's the path I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on. And so if I believe I can heal people, then every time somebody fucking dies, then mm-hmm. I'm a failure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if I believe I'm wounded, and every time I'm presented with this uncomfortable nature of being alive, then I'm in the midst of another failure. But if what I am is I'm experiencing the separation from life and I get to share that with other people, how I've navigated that, then every time somebody dies, this is an opportunity for everybody to have an experience. And every time I'm faced with the separation and what that means, it's just the world pinching me and saying, man, you're still here. And that means you got fucking Mm -hmm. work to do and let's go experience that fully, you know, not for the sake of being happy or comfortable or perfect, but for the sake of Mm -hmm. like, you might as well, because you're you're fucking here. (laughs) Right. Like you can make, you can make the other choice of not really living or white knuckling it or being miserable, or you can show up and do the work. Right. Right. Being told early on life's difficult and that's okay. Hearing people talk about suffering in a positive way, seeing people navigate life and death and good times and bad times and Mm -hmm. not weighing those experiences separately. The first guy I knew to kill himself, who was a really close friend of mine, it was one of the most profound experiences in my life. The best way I can describe it is the experience was whole and that it hit everything inside of me. Mm -hmm. I feel that about my parents dying. Yeah. Yeah. Why the fuck would I want to give that up? Why would I want to give up this experience of like, that's actually on some level or another, those are the closest, if the human experience is about being separate, that's the closest I've come moments like that to feeling like I was part of everything. And so this idea that we're sick and that this is bad and death is bad and Mm -hmm. that's to be avoided at all costs and all these things. It's like when you start to break those things down, you start to realize like, wow, that's a that's a difficult way to live, you know. Mm -hmm. And so if what we're doing instead is we're saying, man, that we've got this opportunity to experience separation and connect to Mm -hmm. that however and and be open to whatever comes, you know. So I've got that experience of him dying. Later on, it was my brother-in-law who died. And Mm -hmm. there's a story on my website about what happened following that where I was visited Mm -hmm. by this owl. And I'm, you know, I'm not Mm -hmm. a, I'm not a hoity-toity, but this experience was unreal. And you can go read the story if you want to. I'm not going to get into it now. So those two experiences were profound. The other ones are, are seeing my children born. What I felt on the inside in terms of like the depth and complexity of the emotion connected to birth. The only thing that rivals that was the depth and complexity of death, particularly Mm -hmm. death that comes outside of what we expect. Right. Instead of old age. Right. Yeah. That my grandmother was like, she was asking for that for 10 years. You know, it's kind of like, (laughs) fuck. Right. Right. Finally, she was like, she was pretty pissed off at God that like, dude, I did all these things. Now you're going to make me So there's a certain happiness, but when you see parents grieving children, one of the things is we have not evolved to bury our children. Like we don't Mm -hmm. have that in us. And so seeing that, seeing that happen Mm -hmm. as many times as I have, that shit's profound. Yeah. Well, 
Jeremy, we could literally, I think, talk forever. Um, but I know you've got a soccer game to play. Yay! I want you to be able to tell people where they can find you. The name of the program is Making Whole, W-H-O-L-E. The W is important. If you Google Making H-O-L-E, you'll find something very different. Um, <laughs> I assume... I'm literally going to do it right now. I, I assume. I don't know what you find. Making oh Whole. Is that... Yeah, it's probably not good. We're on Instagram at Making Whole and Facebook as well. The most important way you can find us is that every day we have a family style meal for lunch where we cook. Oh, what is it? Making whole. It's just about drilling. That's what okay. I that's what I expected, but I didn't expect that kind of drilling. <laughs> <laughs> we went fishing last weekend and caught tuna and wahoo. And so we had fish like eight different ways. We had sushi and sashimi and pokey and hmm. fish tacos. It was amazing. That's not to be expected every day, but we do eat well. And so this family style meal that we have is open to anybody anytime oh, wow. to come eat with us. And so we have people that just pop and you're in. You're in Asheville. We're in Asheville, North Carolina, and 1230, Monday through Friday, we have this meal. And everybody who's listening, this is your official and formal invitation to come eat with us if you're visiting town or if you're not visiting town. If you're like, this is crazy, I want to go from Austin to Asheville just for free lunch. You don't need to bring anything but your appetite and we'll feed you. And if you like playing darts, we'll play a dart game with you afterwards. And then you can hang out at the shop and see what we do. And we also build furniture for people if you need a piece of furniture. Instagram is a great place to go. We've got a couple of pieces we're building right now that are going to be available to people if you want to buy it. And then if you're in the business of helping people, send them our way. And we'll, right. we'll be glad to provide them with this experience. And you can find on my website, my email is jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, and makingwhole.com. Um, you can reach out to me and ask me any question you want and I'll get you more information. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, oh yeah, it was fun. I feel like we should do this again, like several times. Well, I'm down to do it. So what, we've, we've done another podcast and the guy came, it was one of the coolest things. He came and set up shop here at lunch mm. and everybody was, we traded the mic and it was an oh, absolute, cool. it was a load of fun and seeing these guys talk and. It was fun for them because yeah. they were getting asked these questions. It was great for me to watch. They were like, well, so what do you I get bet. out of this? And they were like, I don't know. I thought I was just working, I guess. And, and then they start kind of navigating through it. Right. They also felt famous, you know, because right, podcasts right. are on the Internet. And that, you know, right. sure, yeah. So you can come down here. The other thing we've got is if you're really interested in finding out more, we have the studio is beautiful. We've got a woodworking shop. We've got a architectural concrete shop and a metal shop. And we also have a big dining living space. And we have a room where if you're really interested in the program, I will put you up here. And it's actually, it's not the fucking Hilton, but it's actually, <laughs> I imagine not. it's actually one of the coolest places you'll stay wow. in your travels. And so if somebody's interested in visiting and even coming and working in the shop, we got people from mm. all over the world that will come and just cook meals with us or make mm. shit. The other thing is that we kind of, we make whatever we feel like making. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a maker and you're like, oh, I want to make a big concrete thing and I don't want to make it at my shop because it might break in half and that would feel mm -hmm. bad. Then you can come here and we'll make it at our shop and it can break in half and it'll be delightful. It'll be fine. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, thanks again so, so, so much. I can't wait to put this out in the world. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. It was awesome. Jeremy's pretty cool, huh? Right? It was so cool when we met each other. I saw his cool table and I looked at him and I was like, you and I are going to be friends. So I am so excited that you got to be friends with him now too. And you can find him in all the amazing places that we're going to post on the website. So go to www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast to get all of the info and welcome to 2020. And thank you as always to Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. I appreciate you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, bye-bye.